The following Dharma talk was given by Casey Howe at the 2019 Joshua Tree Retreat offered by Mindful Way. For more information about retreats and other offerings, visit www.mindful-way.com. So, I want to uh, talk tonight about the four foundations uh, of mindfulness. And I kind of want to start with this story that came up uh, one of the group's sessions today. Um, I think it's really applicable. <clears throat> and the, the story is like when I was a caregiver, I caregave for an elderly woman uh, for, for about five years. And when I met her, uh, she was 88 years old, and she'd already had this chronic head pain. And lucky for her, along with that chronic head pain, she also had um, dementia. And the reason I say that she was lucky in this way is that every morning when she woke up, she forgot that she had chronic head pain. And so we would sit in the morning at breakfast and she would feel her head and she would say, hey, you know, I think, I think I have a headache today, you know? My head's not feeling so well. And so I would give her her medicine and, and it, would feel, it would feel better. <clears throat> But what was so interesting to me, you know, to really watch this in, in real time happening, was that she wasn't bringing anything else along with it. Just in that moment, you know, she would feel, you know, this head pain. But I always wondered what it would be like if she took, you know, the past, because she'd already have it, like I said, for, for years, if she took the past, oh my gosh, I woke up with this every day, you know, week in, week out, month after month. If she woke up like that, with all of that around it, and if she also added on to it, you know, like, I'm going to have this, which, you know, she did. She had it for years afterward and until she passed away. That if she took all of that, like how much suffering would have been added to that experience. So she was practicing. She was really mindful with just what is. <laughs> and she really had no option because she just you know, didn't remember. Um, it was kind of an interesting physical safety net, you know, at that age, uh, which I saw kind of the positive of that as well. But what I think is neat about what we're doing here in the, the foundations of mindfulness is that we're really just hanging out with, with the truth. Like Buddha, when he came up with these uh, foundations of mindfulness, but just in general, he was really big on just hanging out with truth. Like just, just the very truth of it. And we think that the truth is actually extremely simple when we don't add anything on to anything. 
if we're really aware of what we know and therefore kind of what we really have to worry about, there's really not much going on. If we take this moment, for example, we're just 70 people or so hanging out in a room, breathing, sitting, lying down. Like that's, that's really all we know, pretty much. <laughs> like our mind might be thinking of all this other stuff that we should worry about and we could worry about, but all we really need to worry about <clears throat> is breathing. Actually, we don't even need to worry about that. The body is breathing itself already. So this trims away a lot of the fat if we could do it, you know, if we could learn to come back home, you know, just to the moment. And her name was Mary, like in Mary's case, she would sit there at the table and just that sensation is the only sensation she had to worry about. Not the sensation from yesterday, not the future sensations, just that sensation. So, this, these four foundations of mindfulness, um, I want to unpack mindfulness itself. Um, and I know everyone is familiar with it, um, and many, there's many teachers here uh, of mindfulness. Um, and I chatted about it last year too, so it's definitely a review, but I know for me personally, I love to hear it over and over and over again, even daily. It's wonderful to have the basics kind of absorbed in, right? I like how in, in the Tibetan culture, they're really big into having a structured sadhana, you know, which is a daily practice. And all of the pillars of the practice, all the elements of the practice are reviewed every day before you get to your main practice. So you may be doing a main practice, but you're covering taking refuge and your motivation and your intention and the Brahma Viharas, you know, opening the heart practices. So you review these every day and then you get to your main practice. And I really love that because it really cements that in. So I'll use uh, John Kevin's um, definition, which is just one of many, but one that I really like, the definition of mindfulness, which is this paying attention to the present moment on purpose, non-judgmentally. So of course this first one, paying attention, this waking up, you know, like Beth was talking about like that scale that they were using, the medical scale, was just this one part of paying attention. It's a, you know, it's a huge part of, of the practice. And we're recognizing, sitting in retreat or in meditation, how hard it is to pay attention and to wake up over and over again. It's very difficult. So paying attention to what? So in, in mindfulness, paying attention to the present moment, 
And this one really sets mindfulness apart um, from other techniques. So many other techniques are using some kind of object uh, for the, the anchor of the practice. And so many of them from the concentration schools, there is an aspect of generating an object and then meditating on that. So what I mean by that is you can generate uh, a mantra, for example. So generating a mantra and then meditating on that. Or you're generating in the mind, you're generating um, a visualization, and then you're meditating on this visualization. So these are wonderful practices, fantastic practices. But one thing about taking the moment as the object is that it's very portable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we could take it wherever we want. So the Tibetans call mindfulness practice the yoga of space, which I really love. And the reason being is that if we build up our practice, it's like building up a home. So if the practice has a lot of rules and, and it has to have a really um, specific environment, so this is like building a house around our meditation. And so just like this, if you were to light an explosive off in a house, what's going to happen? It's going to blow up, yeah? So if you light an explosive off in space, like what's going to happen? There's nothing to, there's nothing to blow up. So when we have practices like mindfulness, there's nothing to blow up. So what this means in practice is that if you're taking the moment as the object, so mindfulness needs to be mindful of something. It's mindful of breath, for example. So there it is, mindful of breath. Breathing in, I know that I'm breathing in. Breathing out, I know that I'm breathing out. And then a dog starts barking next door. And so if we were committed to this, you know, I have to be on the breath, you know, that would be called a distraction, obviously. But instead, sustaining our mindful awareness, we just tune into sound meditation, and we do dog barking meditation. If the dog ceases, if that starts to quiet, then we move back into the breath. So the continuity, continuity of awareness is the same. So therefore, our practice is sustained itself, right? So this is a wonderful aspect of paying attention to what? To the present moment. Also, there's a sense of effortlessness in it. So you can see the effort that it takes you know, to generate a certain object in meditation. Sometimes it's very difficult visualization. But it's kind of like cutting out the middleman with mindfulness because what it's arising in the moment is just arising for us already, and we're just recognizing it.
So there's also this effortless aspect of it. So paying attention to what? To the present moment. Another aspect of the present moment is the senses. Like the senses are the doorway to the present moment. How do we know that we're there in the present moment? If we're aligned with one of the senses, then we're definitely there. Right? We can't touch anything from yesterday, taste anything from tomorrow. If we're in one of the sen- with one of the senses, then we're definitely there. One thing that Minga Rinpoche likes to do is he puts up his hand. Sometimes you hold up his watch, but hold up his hand and says, you know, if you put your eyes, I want you to put your eyes and your mind on my hand. And he'll count to ten, right? We won't do it now, but... So if your eyes and your mind are on my hand, let's say even in ten seconds, your eyes will be able to hang out on my hand. But in ten seconds even, what might happen with the mind? Like even in that short amount of time, the eyes will be on the hand, but the, eye, but the mind might wander. But even if it didn't wander in 10 seconds, 20 seconds, 30 seconds, 40 seconds, eventually it's going to wander even though the eyes are still on the hand. So if you were with the hand, so your, your eyes were there, so one of your senses were there, and then you brought your mind there, then you'd be in mindfulness consciously, right? So paying attention to the present moment. The next one's on purpose. This is my favorite one, on purpose. I don't think on purpose gets the love that the other ones get. Like, paying attention gets a lot of love. Um, The moment, be here now, that gets a lot of love. But on purpose, um, maybe not so much, but this one is my favorite one, on purpose. So this is one of the aspects, like Beth was saying, that paying attention is not enough, on purpose. So we take, for example, like a a dog, you give a dog a treat, the dog is hyper-vigilant, right? Like Zen master, just staring at that treat. Incredible. Incredible concentration, think about it. (laughs) Totally amazing. So we could think that's it, be like the dog. Like that's, that's my master. If I'm just like the dog, then then I'm done, yeah? There could be a knock at the door, the dog could move into that, and then right back, right back to the tree, you know? Amazing focus. But the dog is not necessarily conscious of consciousness in that, at that moment, although I love dogs, and I think we are evolving into that kind of love <laughs> that a dog has. The dog is not necessarily conscious of what it's doing, yeah? Like, I'm a good boy, I'm going to get this treat. <laughs> it's just from more of a primal instinct, right? So just like us, if there's a loud noise outside or something, we might run to the door and look, but it would be out of instinct. We're paying attention, but out of instinct. Or we don't walk, walk into a college classroom, you see everybody you know, paying attention to the teacher, but we don't say, oh, look at all these meditators. 
They're all meditating, but they're all paying attention. Right? There's an aspect of this. My favorite aspect is that what shows up when we're on purpose? What is showing up? This is that wakefulness. Yeah, this is the awakeness. This is what we're attempting to marinate in. And this is like the investigation. Like, what shows up when we're on purpose? What part of our being, our consciousness, our awareness? So paying attention to the present moment on purpose. And the last one is non-judgmentally. Paying attention to the present moment on purpose, non-judgmentally. So the last one's easy, right? The non-judgment part. <laughs> so someone wrote, wrote a note to maybe clarify non-judgment because we've been talking about this. And so non-judgment in simple terms is not having attachment or aversion to what is arising. And that includes our judgment. <laughs> so don't judge the judging either. So when something arises, it's not a good thought, it's not a bad thought, it's just there, it's just a thought. So just recognizing that. When an emotion arises, it's not a good emotion, it's not a bad emotion. It's just present. When sensations arise, it's not a good sensation or a bad sensation. It's just something that's arising. And to do this, you know, we're going to habituate. We're going to be, um, you know, wanting to judge. You know, this is um, a habit of ours. So like we spoke about before, this takes practice to not grasp, not follow that judgment as that arises. And so I think that the reason why we're not so mindful is because of this one part. You know, I think that if we were already open and non-judgmental to what is arising, it would be easy. You know, it would be easy to practice. But this, this judgment causes a lot of discomfort, you know. And so we watch usually how we deal with it is when something uncomfortable arises, we move into distraction. When the going gets tough, the tough get distracted. The tough look at their cell phone. <laughs> you know, and this could be really subconscious. Like we're driving and we feel something that's uncomfortable. And we're maybe not even which we're going to be talking about the foundations of mindfulness about tuning into these things, but we're not even really aware. We're not aware that it's uncomfortable and we move towards the radio and we turn on the radio and then all of a sudden we're in distraction. Yeah? And we just stuff that down <laughs> for later. So paying attention to the present moment on purpose, non-judgmentally. <clears throat> now this is a definition of mindfulness, but that's not mindfulness, right? 
that's not mindfulness really at all. That's just a definition. So mindfulness itself is your experience of the definition. Your experience of the instruction. That's mindfulness. And this maybe is a little bit dangerous that that mindfulness can work kind of conceptually, like, oh yeah, paying attention to the present moment, I got it, you know. And kind of help out in a way. <laughs> it's kind of dangerous that we might not move into experience. Now for many of you, this is your first retreat. And if it's not your first, maybe you can go back to a time where you just read about mindfulness and you thought it was neat or cool or just something you want to investigate. But then you came and actually sat. Is it a little bit different than just reading about it in experience? It's a little different. If you were to go to a foreign country, if you go to Italy, and then you came back and told your friend about Italy, would they really know Italy? Not really. So this is a really important aspect, that we really move into the practice of it and not allow it to stay just in our heads. Okay, so now that we have an overview of mindfulness, um, I want to talk about the, about the four foundations. and. For those of you that are familiar with MBSR, which I think most of you are, this is obviously really familiar because MBSR is built upon these four foundations, mindfulness of body, mindfulness of feeling, mindfulness of mind, and mindfulness of dharma, which is like all phenomena. And so John Kabat-Zinn pretty much you know, used um, the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the discourse for the four foundations of mindfulness, along with the Metta Sutta, which we already went over, the loving-kindness practice. He used that as really the core of MBSR, which I think is so awesome because, you know, we have this over 2,500 years, this lineage of just human beings, just like all of us, using these techniques, the same exact techniques. And then, and like now, we have what, 35, 40 years of, like 40 years of MBSR and all the science that has come out and using these same practices. It's so neat. So I want to start off, I just want to read just a sentence or two of the Satipatthana Sutta. Um, and I want to read this just because I want to give you the direct translation and so you can see how it hasn't changed at all. And so the Buddha here is talking to the monks and the monks are asking him, so you know, how do we practice this first foundation, the mindfulness of body? And so he's talking about the monk how a monk would practice. And he says, breathing in long, he knows, I breathe in long, 
breathing out long, he knows I breathe out long. Breathing in short, he knows I breathe in short. Breathing out short, he knows I breathe out short. So does that sound familiar? Breathing in, I know that I am breathing in. Breathing out, I know that I am breathing out. So he goes on, the Buddha goes on in the Satipatthana Sutta there to investigate all the different aspects of the body. And Jagdhambadzin skillfully used this same method in the body scan to use this as the anchor. And we're using this as an anchor to become, to have a whole new relationship with this thing called body. You know, this, this body turns into um, more of, of an experience happening. Most of the time the body is connected to an identification of self, you know, in a lot of ways, instead of just an experience arising within our awareness. And so all sorts of revelations can come when we start to investigate the body just as it is, just as more of an experience. You know, a really dear friend of mine, um, where to start this story. hope it won't be too long. But anyway, I, it's a little, little setup of the story. So in my early 20s, I was a pipe fitter in South, South San Francisco. And being a meditator in the construction world in the early 90s was a bit rare. <laughs> Not everyone was so hip to to meditation back then and so you kind of had to be careful like how that got out you know and that you meditated I, I walked into the outhouse one day and the word got out that I meditated and somebody drew on the outhouse this meditator and there was this pipe and it said be one with the pipe and that was me you know they had drunk you know you would always draw people on there and everything so that's my illustration but I thought it was pretty funny. Um, but yeah, one day I was repiping. We were actually building new Whole Foods. And we're underneath, my other worker and I were underneath the sub area and we're working away. And he's this really cool guy. He's this African American guy from Louisiana. And we started talking just on the edges of spirituality, you know. We were just kind of checking each other out, vibing each other out. And then he looked at me and he says, do you know, do you know about Kundalini? And uh, I was like, man, this guy and I, are, we're going to be friends, you know. Um, I said, yeah, yeah, I do. So anyway, we got to be really good friends. And so we still are. And he is just this really amazing being. He's just one of those people that you meet that he's just really evolved, you know. He, just, he tells me about his meditations and they're just incredible. And he doesn't really have a lineage or 
um, kind of a formal practice, but he's just amazing. So I went and visited him a couple years ago. And I show up, you know, I knock at the door, I show up, and he lives in Las Vegas now. And when he opens the door, I look, and <laughs> a portion of his hair is just shaved off. Like, you know, just like there's a strip, like a, a strip of hair is just gone, you know? And his hair is pretty short, but you can just tell it's just gone, you know? And, uh, and so, you know, he doesn't mention it. And we're hanging out a couple hours or whatever, and we're talking about this, like, egoic affiliation with body and just, you know, ego and, and this and that. And he's like, yeah, you know, case in point. He's like, this morning, you know, I cut my own hair, and he's like, something happened with the attachment, and I just shaved that part of my hair right off, <laughs> you know? And uh, he's like, I just looked in the mirror, and I, I was just like, eh. And that was it, you know, and, and I was coming over and I was bringing you know, my girlfriend at the time that he never met, and he was completely unfazed by that, you know, this big strip off, you know. But I looked at it as like a, the fruition of the practice, you know, that he was not self-identifying with it, it was just a happening, like that happened, just that. And so I want to read um, another story from, um, from, Brett, uh, from Beth's book. And she writes, I had a lovely young woman student who struggled a lot with body image. She was constantly thinking about her weight and her appearance. It was a source of great suffering for her, and nothing she had tried before could help the grip of these thoughts. After trying the body scan and mindful walking, she reported, I wasn't fat, I wasn't thin, I wasn't too anything. I was just me. I was just me standing. Suddenly I felt so much gratitude for my feet and my legs. I felt so grateful for this body. And then I realized that everyone has one, a body I mean. And it may sound strange, but I felt less alone. I don't know if I ever felt this way before. Tears streaming down her face and a profound transformation had begun simply by bringing mindfulness into the body. So kind of circling back to where I started with Staying with what's real. <clears throat> I love that story, obviously because of the transformation and, and whatnot, but she was staying with what's real. What's real is I have a body. I wasn't fat, I wasn't skinny. I was just standing. So we're talking about like trimming away the fat, you know, of of our thinking, you know, of our adding on. And so how simple is that? Breathing in, I know that I'm breathing in. Breathing out, I know that I'm breathing out. Standing, I know that I'm standing. That's it. So 
So the next one is feeling tones, Vedana, so mindfulness of feelings. How many of you have feelings? <laughs> Those are real, you know. Mindfulness of body, that's real. If the body's real, it's happening right now. Feelings, those are happening. So traditionally, we are aware of a few different types of feelings. And again, if you're familiar with MBSR, these are in there too, the, the pleasant, the unpleasant, and the neutral. And it is said that unseen, like if we don't look at pleasant, unseen pleasant feelings evolve into attachment, craving. Unseen, unpleasant, evolve into aversion. And then unseen neutral evolves into ignorance. And ignorance in this way just simply means not seeing things as they are. So I heard a story, a story one time, I don't know where I heard it, but it was of somebody practicing this practice, and he was noticing his attachment, this feeling of attachment, of um, walking into a cafe where he f would eat his favorite cookie, where they, had, they made his favorite cookie, you know. And when he got there, they were sold out <laughs> of, his, of his favorite cookie. So he was recognizing, like, you know, the attachment or craving, and then he's recognizing unpleasant, you know, this unpleasant sensation. Oh, no cookie, <laughs> you know. But this is, this is like the day-to-day -day experience of just noticing and then, you know, maybe if it was unchecked, it could have, it could have gone, you know, a little bit longer. It's just a cookie. It's no big deal, right? But we could use different examples where we could really get caught up in that feeling of unpleasant. Yeah? But when we bring awareness to it, and again, like we've been saying all along, now we have a bit of choice. So you could stay with just what is unpleasant feeling, Right? You could also get angry, oh, I can't believe they ran out of my favorite cookie, and all that stuff. But this coming into this awareness of feelings, a lot of times we're attaching, again, this self-identity like we do with the body. There's a different feeling that we get, um, or different uh, relationship. If you say, for example, I'm tired, like there's a different tone if we say, the feeling of tiredness is arising in my awareness. Right? Tiredness is arising in my awareness. That's different than saying something like, I'm tired. So the difference there. Tiredness is arising in my awareness. This is more true. Like, I'm tired. This is a little bit different. We could use this as, as an example of, of, of anger. I think we've all had the feeling of, of getting really pissed off. Have you ever had this feeling like you're getting pissed? Like somebody's like pushing you? 
So there's still awareness there. If you're getting pissed, then there's you're still holding it together. <laughs> there's the awareness, and there's the getting pissed, right? So there's two things. And you could feel it escalating. You ever feel this? Like it's, oh my gosh, if they keep doing what they're doing, I'm going to lose it, right? And then you lose it. <laughs> There's no more awareness. There's no more awareness. There, there's just anger. There's no more awareness of anger. So you notice how when this we become very contracted, very narrow, there's no more choice, right? You're just moving with anger. There's no more choice. Choice is out the window, right? That was like two minutes ago. <laughs> Same thing with any strong sensation. We say things that are funny, like, like my finger, right? So I have a finger, my finger. But then, if I hit my finger hard with a hammer, which I've done several times, when, it can, when the sensation becomes very strong, I say, I'm in pain. It's interesting. A moment ago, I had a finger, so my finger. But I don't just say, oh, the finger's in pain. <laughs> like, I own a pair of shoes, too, but if you go out there and hit my shoes, I'm not going to say, ouch. But they're my shoes. Just like this is my body. Yeah? My finger. So it's an interesting, it's interesting relationship. Like, when, when phenomena becomes very strong, how we merge with it is just interesting. You know, if we could hold on to our awareness, awareness is very, very vast and is very stable. Yeah? So it's a place of refuge. If you check in, where does your awareness end? See how vast it is? It's very vast. So like this, like space, right? Space could hold a trillion stars without a problem, yeah? So if one star was freaking out, was burning up, if one star was burning up, would space freak out? I don't know if space has a personality to freak out, but, <laughs> but the point is, is that we could become very vast. We could, we could take a step back and marinate in this vastness and there's sensation arising, but we don't necessarily need to move towards it. We don't necessarily need to become it. I love how Thich Nhat Hanh, like when anger arises, how he says, hello, dear one, how are you? Love that. That's a whole different relationship with anger. Bringing loving kindness towards it but also really keeping, um, distance might be the wrong word for it, but there's definitely a relationship there where there's not a becoming, right? Hello, dear one, how are you? So this is mindfulness of feeling. So the next one is mindfulness of mind. 
So mindfulness of mind and mental states. How many of you have mental states? Those are real. Those are happening. So I'm going to read again from Beth's book here. And she quotes here the Satipatthana Sutta in the instruction and just really very, very simple. The truth is very simple. She says here, the Buddha is very specific in his instructions. For example, he asks that we know an angry mind to be angry and a mind without anger to be without anger. A contracted mind to be contracted, and a distracted mind to be distracted. A great mind to be great, and a narrow mind to be narrow. So simple being with what is. And on the next page, she talks about that in her MBSR class, that there is kind of a fruition of understanding on, with some of the participants, how they're coming in, in tune with their mental states. And she writes, I love this, when Joe says, Joe was on to Joe, <laughs> he is experiencing the third foundation. So Joe is saying, you know, he's on to himself, like he's watching himself. He knows his angry mind and body are angry and rigid, and he is also aware of something in him larger than that state, something we might call wisdom or clarity, which opens up possibilities for new behavior. This is everything. I'm going to read that again. He knows his angry mind and body are angry and rigid, and he is also aware of something in him larger than that state. I just spoke a little bit about checking in with awareness something we might call wisdom or clarity, which opens up possibilities for new behavior. If I didn't think it was weird, I'd read it again. <laughs> Just because, you know, this is it. Recognizing, opening up spaciousness, recognizing again the habitual reaction, so waking up, and then waking up to the reaction of stimulus, and then choosing a wiser, more compassionate path of action. That's beautiful. That's real transformation. You know, there's an acronym used in in uh, MBSR HALT, which is really pointing to this, you know, recognizing um, these feeling tones, recognizing if you're hungry, um, angry, lonely, tired. And I remember reading uh, Eat, Love, Pray. Anyone read that book? Yeah, it's a great book. There's a part of the book where uh, Liz Gilbert, right, is her name, her love interest in the book, he was using the third foundation of mindfulness. There's a part in there where they're both irritated. I believe, I kind of forget the details, but they're traveling, and I think 
for traveling somewhere and they're both irritated, right? And he says, honey, we have to be very careful right now. And she says, why? He says, because we're both very irritated and we might say something we don't mean. So it's very wise. So he's paying attention to the feeling tones. He's saying, we have to be really vigilant now. So the final foundation is the mindfulness of Dharma. And so Dharma has two meanings. You might hear a lot of like the Dharma, which in one meaning is the, the teachings of the Buddha. But the other meaning is all phenomena, just all phenomena. So this is taking life as the path and recognizing that all of life is um, an opportunity for, for mindfulness. But there's also an aspect of coming into the seeing things authentically. So one thing that I actually I forgot to mention throughout is the refrain in the Satipatthana Sutta was actually mentioned, I believe, 13 times in a very short text, where the Buddha is talking about when we're mindfulness of body, we're mindfulness of the arising and the abiding and the cessation of sensations. We're mindfulness of feeling that we're mindful of the arising, the abiding, and the falling away. And so all throughout, he's talking about the impermanence of these phenomena in every single aspect. So time and time again, he's pointing to the impermanence, which is one of the, one of the most common, most foundational truths of existence, that everything's arising, abiding, and then falling away. So there's an aspect of this Dharma piece of phenomena that when we get to really know phenomena, the closer that we get to becoming in line with truth, hanging out with truth so much that we befriend it, then it becomes super easy when there's no resistance. You know, it's like a lot of the time in life there's a rushing river and a current, and we're standing in the current or maybe even pushing against it. And with these practices of just coming in alignment with truth is like turning around, lifting up your legs, and coasting you know, down with the current. Yeah? And we, when we do this, there's, there's no resistance. There's no problem. As long as you're in line with truth, there's no problem. And so impermanence, for example, is the truth of things. So being a, with truth, no problem. So being with interdependence, we also look at this, the, 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 that we're all in relationship to other things, to each other and other beings. And then another thing that we look at is that we are creating our own version of reality, like we all are. We're all creating our own version of it. And so this is another thing to look at in a very positive way, that it is whatever we bring to it, right? And so everything in this room, 
everyone's going to see this bowl different or this clock different or us differently. And when we pay attention to phenomena, which will be a different talk, but when we pay attention to like all of dharmas, we look at this, that not, nothing is universally existing just in one way and seen by everybody the same. Right? Which is very freeing, which means we have an opportunity to make things how we want it to be. Right? To bring our own version of to it right? from our own side. So I want to end with one more story. It's called Making Firewood. The Chinese uh, Zen monk, Dei Chun, lived in rural Tennessee in the 1960s and 70s, where he attracted a small but devoted group of students associated with the nearby university. When Dei Chun first came to Tennessee, there was a huge dead oak in the yard beside his cabin. One day, one of his neighbors happened by and said, you better cut that thing down, or one of these days it's going to fall on your roof. Okay, thank you, said Dei Chun. The next day, he went into town and bought a hatchet at a thrift store, and he promptly set to work on the tree's enormous trunk, chopping away for some time every morning and showing no signs of discouragement at his minimal progress. Neighbors, seeing him working day after day, showed up with chainsaws and power saws, offering to cut it down for him. Thank you, no, said Dei Chun. I do it my way. This went on for months, with such regularity that if his neighbors didn't hear the steady chop, chop, chop of Dei Chun on his tree on any given morning, they'd come over to make sure that he was all right. It became a phenomenon, a cause for conversation, and before long, this strange old Chinese fellow who moved in from out of nowhere had become a member of the neighborhood. One day, the tree finally fell with a crash that shook all the houses on his street. And one of Dei Chun's friends asked him, so what will you do now? Make firewood, answered Dei Chun. He later said that this is the way he taught them meditation. You just chop away a little bit every day, and one day an enormous tree falls. All right. So with that, let's chop away a little bit. <laughs> so go ahead and we're just going to have a silent sit for a bit.
Thank you for listening. For more information, visit www.mindful-way.com.